Well, this is um, the second part of a series of messages that I have entitled Lower Than Angels. Because you remember that the phrase lower than angels is mentioned in verse 7 and in verse 9 with reference to Jesus Christ. That he was made for a while lower than the angels. Which is to say that Jesus came down and entered into our humanity. And when he did that, he brought with him such a glorious redemption and of redemptive work. To be lower than the angels does not mean that he is less important than the angels. It does not mean that he is less powerful than the angels, that he is somehow ontologically beneath the angels. Of course, it does not, but it does speak to his humiliation. It speaks to his state of humility when he was on the earth and when he was here he proclaimed to us such great things great salvation and that is what's being referred to there in verse 3 how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation and so i really want to zero in on that question right there because the text really operates in the form of working towards that question and then working out of that question all of the many implications that are there and so what the author is going to give us is he's going to give us several lessons that we ought to learn and remember we are to hear the word and pay close attention to what we have heard verse 1 and so the author gives us a lesson from the past. He gives us a redemptive lesson that is embedded in the question itself. And then he gives us a lesson from the Lord Jesus himself and what God had done there. Now, let's begin by looking at lessons from the past. In order to avoid the peril of drifting away, Remember verse 1, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that, here's the purpose, we do not drift away from it. That's the peril of apostasy. The author is giving us yet another important lesson from Old Testament history. In verse 2, he looks back towards the word that was spoken through the angels, which again is referring to the old covenant. And this is the way that he talks about it, beginning in verse 2. He says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We have already looked at the significance of the angels and the fact that the angels were closely associated with the giving of the law. But let me remind you of the collective testimony of Scripture on this very point. In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen, before he was stoned, gave a witness to the fact that the law was ordained by the angels. In Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says the same thing, that the law was added having been ordained through the angels and through the agency of a mediator that is Moses in Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 this is the closest thing we have to what the New Testament authors are referring to in the giving of the law God surrounding himself with angelic hosts it says the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousands of his holy ones. And that has been interpreted by the Septuagint as referring to angels. Also, Psalm 68 makes the same assertion that God is surrounded by myriads and thousands upon thousands of these spiritual hosts. So now the point of this is that the author is saying, look, what was spoken through the angels proved to be unalterable. In other words, it was uncompromising. It was unrelenting in terms of its retribution and its justice. And therefore, 
he begins to bear down these forensic terms, which means legally binding terms into the text. That's what he means when he speaks about the old covenant being unalterable, that Greek word there, bibios, just literally means that there is a total enforcement in place. God seeks to enforce meticulously his covenant law. And where do you see that? You see that in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, that if the children of Israel would disobey, then these specific penalties would follow. And that is exactly what happened throughout the course of the history of the children of Israel. It is quite dreadful. Just open up Deuteronomy 28 and see the things that God promised would come upon the people had they disobeyed, and indeed they did, and indeed those things did come upon them. But he uses the word unalterable. He also uses the word just or just for justice. In other words, what God's enforcement of his law was, it was justice. And what it brought about was a just penalty. These are all forensic legal terms. And it's important because it is pointing us now forward to the fact that there's a continuity of the seriousness of the covenant structure of the new covenant. That is to say that he is arguing for the, from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, if this meticulous enforcement of the justice and legal retribution of God was in place in the old covenant, how much more? That's the way he argues. Now, how often do we think of that when we think of Jesus? How much more serious? How much more severe? Because oftentimes, in the breach of the old covenant, certain temporal, patriarchal, and physical uh, consequences ensued, like being pursued by their enemies. But in the new covenant, if you apostatize from the new covenant, if you go away from the new covenant, how much more severe are the consequences for turning away from the new covenant? If every transgression, if every transgression carried with it a just penalty, how much more after God, look at the text there back in um, in verse 3, after he says, after God had spoken it through the Lord, he uses another very closely forensic term here. It was confirmed. That's a legal way of saying it was established. It's the same root word that goes back to that word that it proved to be unalterable. But by us, only here it is a verb. It was confirmed to those or to us by those who heard. And then another legal term, verse 4, God was also testifying with them. And so the punishment, the punishment of these crimes in the Old Testament are recorded for us in several places. Let me give you one. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, there you see the severity of the wrath of God as revealed in the Old Covenant. Hebrews contains it for us Beginning in verse 8, it says, do, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest." And we could say now, under the new covenant, God will swear in his wrath that if you leave the new covenant, you will not enter, not a temporal rest, not a Canaanite rest, not a rest found in the promised land, but you will not enter the eternal Sabbath rest of God. Everything has been elevated. Everything has been intensified under Christ. Hebrews 2.2 is not the only place where the Old Testament, therefore, invokes these Old Testament warnings to show of the, of the need to take heed to the New Testament revelation under Christ. Turn to Hebrews 10 because the author essentially does the same thing here, failure to see Christ, failure to understand the new covenant, failure to rightly esteem the, the, the sacrifice of Christ will land you in hot water. Look at uh, Hebrews 10, 28. It says, anyone who has laid aside the law of Moses dies 
without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is the parallel of if the word spoken through angels proved to be unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, same idea right here in Hebrews 10.28. If you set aside the law of Moses, then you die without mercy. In verse 29, how much severer the punishment do you think he will deserve, watch this, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That is a way of referring to dismissing the new covenant claims of Christ, the new covenant work of Christ. He says, and he has regarded as an unclean thing the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Those are heavy-duty terms, by the way, that are being used here. To count the blood of the covenant as unclean. Now, for us, we would think something like, what, it wasn't clean? (laughs) But to a Jewish mind, it means it is that which belongs to the realm of the profane. And so by, by, by... Rejecting the new covenant, what these Jewish people would have been saying, these early Jewish Christians, at least professing Christians, what they would have been saying is the blood of Christ is actually profane. It is not clean. It is not Levitically cleansed. It is not, it does not, it does not qualify for that which could bring spiritual cleansing. He says he's regarded it as an unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and he has insulted the spirit of grace, the grace that the spirit has brought. Therefore, verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's just an amazing thing. So then, in verse 2, the point is again to emphasize the severity of disobeying the new covenant word of Christ. That is what is being talked about in terms of what has been spoken. The reality of Christ and his word carries with it all determining divine force. If you do not listen to Jesus, you do not listen to God. If you do not accept what Jesus says and does now... You do not accept what God did and said in the past. Turn with me to John chapter 8 just to see this because I don't often think that today we attribute the type of severity that is embedded in the message of Jesus in the message of the gospel. Everything is presented as the gospel is an option. The gospel is a reasonable thing to believe. The gospel is a good addition to your life. But those, none of those things really do justice to the words of Jesus and to the message of Jesus and to the work that God is doing through Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 42, you see this interaction where Jesus is speaking to the Jews and he says to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Watch this. It is because you cannot hear my word. And the implication there is you cannot tolerate it. You cannot bear it. You won't put up with it. You won't endure it. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Why is the message of Jesus so serious? Because it is the truth. And because he speaks the truth and nothing but the truth, so help himself. It is a word that is unalterable. It is a word that cannot be set aside. It is a word that you can't trivialize. And how oft has the message of Jesus been trivialized away? How about today in our present cultural context? The severity of Jesus is trivialized away by a perversion of the love of Jesus, the love of God. Everything under the love of God trivializes every other attribute of God, it seems. 
No, what people want today is a view of Jesus that is politically correct, a harmless, non-threatening Jesus, a non-judgmental Jesus who approves of pretty much everything and anything. Such is not the Jesus of Scripture. Hebrews is painting a picture for us of the consequences of failing to listen to the real Jesus. Hebrews is saying, as awful as the Old Testament judgments were, they pale in comparison to what it means to fall under the judgment of that for which the word of the Son was spoken. This is why the author uses this emphatic language. You remember verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And we made a lot out of that word salvation because it means that it is the unfolding of redemptive history. It is the unfolding of God's revelation of the salvation that he has brought for man. And when it comes to Jesus, that salvation, that history, that redemptive plan of God is reaching its full maturation. It is filling up. It is ripe. It has reached the apex, the climax. It is the pivot point of all human history now. And to reject that is to reject his redemption. And that's the next thing, not just lessons from the past, lessons from Israel, as Scripture often calls us to look upon, but also lessons from redemption itself. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This speaks of the redemptive nature of this warning here. The argument, again, is from the lesser to the greater. This warning is rooted in the redemptive developments of God's people, he had, as the opening verses suggested, if you go back to chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, you remember there that God said long ago to the fathers and in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, God has spoken in his Son. In other words, Jesus comes in a long line of godly men, but he speaks with finality, he speaks with definitive power. He speaks, and there is no more speaking to be done. And that's why he uses that Greek verb in the perfect tense, which means it is a settled issue. Christ, what he has done, what he did through the apostles, as we're going to go on to see. Uh, this points to the progressive nature of revelation. In other words, there is an increasing of the dissemination of God's truth. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 just to see this progression again and just to see that this is the way the author argues time and time again throughout the letter. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 25, the author says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. <laughs> For if those did not escape... When they refused him who was warning them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. What's the context? The context is the difference between the heavenly and the earthly. From, to make it exact, correspondence here, from Sinai or Zion. That's the context going back to chapter 12. And verse 18, he in verse 18, he assures them that they have not come again to Sinai, but as he says in verse 22, they had come to Zion, which represents the heavenly abode of God's people and God himself. And so the contrast here, heaven, earth, is ultimately a contrast between old covenant associated with the earthly Sinai, a new covenant associated with a heavenly Zion. And what this all is pointing us to is redemption has moved on. If you go back to the old Judaistic ways of relating to God, if you go back to the sacrificial system, if you go back to the priesthood, if you go back to the Old Testament civil laws and ceremonial laws and all of those things, you are going backwards in what God is doing. God has moved on. God has moved beyond that. He has been, he's given us further revelation. In the dispensation of new covenant grace, 
We are seeing the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises, types, shadows, imagery, all of it, which terminates in Christ. I love it. It's just wonderful to me to reflect on the old covenant type, shadows, images, promises, covenants, and to know that all of those things are marvelously speaking of Jesus Christ. We see a shadow in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. We see a shadow with the scapegoat. We see a shadow in the kinsman redeemer. We see a shadow in the old covenant laws and ceremony and Sabbath, all of those things. We see a shadow, but in the face of Jesus, we see all reality. It would be as if you meet Jesus and you greet his shadow. That's the type of insult it would be. Jesus would say, I'm here. (laughs) I know my shadow is impressive to you, but I'm here. Deal with me now. And stop going back to those Old Testament shadows and types. This is one of the problems that I have with Messianic congregations. Messianic congregations tend to go backwards in redemptive history and to re-erect the wall of division that separated Jew and Gentile, which speaks totally contrary to what the New Testament is trying to, to teach us, that there is no division. Galatians 3.28, there is no difference between Jew or Gentile male or female. We are all one in Christ. We don't need to go to a Jewish church if you're Jewish. You don't need to go to a Gentile church if you're Gentile. We are to come together. That's why I don't believe in racially segregated churches. I don't believe in black churches. I don't believe in Hispanic churches. When I first got saved, I got saved in a certain background, and somebody took me to a homeboy church Everybody was a gangster. The pastor was a gangster, you know, sagging his pants, wearing his lokes. I thought, this is completely opposite of what Jesus died for. He didn't die to keep us like this. He died so that a punk thug like me would have fellowship with a very stuffy white business guy like so-and-so. We have nothing in common outside of Christ. But in Christ, we have everything in common. We are brothers bound by the bond of the Spirit of God. And how dare we back away from that redemptive work? How dare we say, no, we need to go back to the old way it was. (laughs) We need to have courts, the Gentile court, the women court, right, the women's court, and then the male court. No. We were recently in Israel, and we were reminded of of that as um, my wife uh, just uh, innocently and quite humorously, I might add, ventured beyond the women's court into the male court, and they, secret service practically came to grab her and remind her, you're not allowed over here, ma'am. You know, you're a woman. This is for men. All of those divisions have been torn down in Christ. It was Christ, after all, who was ridiculed for having women in his fellowship. He broke down. You want to talk about the progress of, uh, of the social order of man? I mean, Jesus is the one that went up to the woman at the well, and she said, how is it that you, a Jew, number one, a man, number two, are speaking to me, a woman and a Samarian? That's because Jesus has done away with such trivial lines of division. Now we are all one in Christ. We're all one in Christ. Hebrews gives us a commentary on this very thing of no longer going backwards but going forward. In Hebrews 10, 26, again, it says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's not just speaking about any type of movement. That is, again, referring to the context of the letter, that there were Christian Jews who were being tempted to apostatize from the new covenant and go back to the old covenant. And what Jesus is saying is, there's nothing left for you over there. There are no more sacrifices. There are no more sacrifices. The text goes on to say, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. In other words, if you go backwards in redemptive history, the only thing you can expect is judgment. And as a matter of fact, the text goes on to say in chapter 12, verse 27, that there is coming a day in which God will shake the whole heavens. No one will escape the judgment of God. And if you have not moved on into Christ, you will suffer under that dreadful judgment. But now, the author doesn't just give us lessons from angels and Israel and the progress of redemption, but he testifies to us right from the Lord Jesus himself. This is what he says. He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was spoken first through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And so he moves us into the testimony of Jesus himself. Jesus, God was testifying to them. Jesus came and with Jesus came the apostolic tradition. So really two things are being suggested for us here. Two things. We have the witness of Jesus and the apostles, and then we have the witness of God and the Spirit. God and His Spirit. His Spirit. First, the witness of Jesus and the apostles. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, because this is exactly the way the apostles interpreted this. When Jesus came, they understood it was the day of visitation. They understood it was the time where redemptive, redemption moved forward, where history had culminated in Christ. The realization of it was here, and that's the way they saw it. John chapter 1, verse 14 and 18, a passage that should be very familiar to many of you. It says, and the word became flesh, that is, the divine pre-incarnate, pre-existent word, chapter 1, verse 1, now, verse 14, has become flesh, sarks, and he dwelt among us. That is to say, he tabernacled with us. He pitched his tent with us, which to a Jew is reminiscent to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God would come and meet with his people so Jesus now incarnates all of that, incarnates all of that. We saw his glory, just like Moses would see the glory of the Lord in the tent of meeting and at the tabernacle, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, grace and truth. Grace and truth is not just a New Testament invention. It is an attribute of Yahweh. Yahweh was gracious and truthful, gracious and faithful. These are attributes of Yahweh now being associated with Jesus Christ. Verse 15, John testified about him crying out saying, this is he of whom I said, he comes after me. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. That's a very powerful pre-existent text. Verse 16, for of his, will, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Endless waves of grace is what came in Christ. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That is a very important point, by the way. Verse 17, if you have a certain version, I think King James does this, for the law was given through Moses, but King James would say, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. But that word but is not in the text. It just, the reason that's important is because we're not talking about one versus the other, as if these things are at odds with each other. Moses and Jesus are not at odds. They work together. He comes from that. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In other words, the fulfillment of everything that Moses brought. 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is at the bosom of the Father. Watch this. This is his, this is his witness. He has explained him. That Greek word there is where we get our word exegesis. He came to explain, to unfold, to reveal who God is. In other words, the author of our redemption is also the revealer of our redemption. It was Jesus who fully announced the realities of the new covenant. Mark chapter 9, verse 17. Jeremiah chapter 31. Luke chapter 5, verse 37. He warned that something greater had arrived. According to Jesus, and you can do a, just a study even just in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, on several occasions, Matthew or Jesus recorded in Matthew is saying something greater is here, greater is here, greater is here. What is greater? Well, there's someone here greater than the temple. Well, there's someone here greater than Solomon. Someone is here greater than Jonah. So you have the institutions of Israel. You have the kingdom, Solomon. You have the prophets, Jonah, and even the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 8. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, referring to the rituals or the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. His prophecy of a destroyed temple in Matthew 13 tells us of the total prophetic disillusionment of the Old Covenant cultists and way of life. In other words, Jesus sealed it all with a prophecy, not one stone will be left upon another. It is futile to try to go backwards. And how does Jesus seal the deal? He gives us a prophecy. You see this magnificent temple? Not one stone will be left upon another. He is going to destroy that temple. So you never again go back into that temple and try to perform sacrifices that are realized in him. Jesus also is the one who established the apostolic tradition. So it's the witness of Jesus and the apostles. It was first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, i.e., the apostles. They are those who heard. They're the authoritative witness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And with the apostles came the apostolic tradition. And this is why we are not afraid of the word tradition, as long as we understand that as referring to nothing more than what the apostles themselves taught. Let me give you some verses on that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Now, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church will try to tell you, you see the word tradition there? Even the Bible says you can have the Bible and tradition. That is a, that's a faulty argument. Here, the word paradosis, tradition, is synonymous with the apostolic preaching of the cross. It's synonymous with the gospel. It is synonymous with the apostles' doctrine. Also, if you jump over to chapter 3 of Thessalonians, it says, Now we have commanded you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see that? In the name of the Lord Jesus means we bear and carry his authority. He says that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us that you received from us. This is a very important point of hermeneutics as well because we live in a culture that loves to pit Scripture against Scripture, right? They love to pit Scripture against Scripture. It's Jesus versus the apostles, not Jesus and the apostles. How many times have you heard those types of arguments? Well, Jesus didn't say anything about that. <laughs> I know Paul says it, but Jesus doesn't say it. <laughs> as if that's somehow an argument. It's not an argument because these two are not at odds. They work together. They coalesce. But what, about the, what about the witness of God and his spirit? The text goes on to say, God was testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own 
will, according to his own will. So God's witness consisted in the miraculous confirmation that what was granted to the apostles and the early church was in fact true. Nothing can be clearer from this passage than that this was the very purpose for which these miraculous and charismatic phenomenon were given to the New Testament church to authenticate the gospel message as God's final redemptive act and redemptive history. The author does not at all seek to even perpetuate such things since the foundation of their salvation did not rest in the signs, in the wonders, in the miracles, or in the spirituals, that's the way the Greek is, that he sovereignly gave spiritual gifts, that's one way to look at it, but in the message of the gospel itself. In other words, Scripture never points you to the sign, to the wonder, to the miracle, to the charismatic phenomenon as the basis of your faith. It is always the message. It is always the content of the gospel. That is the foundation that your faith rests in. This is why Paul can say of the Jews, Jews seek a sign in a bad way. They're seeking a sign to to, to, to satisfy their thirst for phenomenological things, which is not where our faith ought to rest. It ought to rest instead in what the testimony of the miracles is about, namely the message of salvation, the word that has been spoken to us through the Lord and then through the apostles. As a matter of fact, the phrase signs and wonders does not originate from the Corinthian church. It does not originate from Jesus or the apostles. The terms signs and wonders originates from Old Testament theology. It is there that the term sign and wonders first appear. And there are only two kinds of signs and wonders. There is true and false. True and false. And Whenever the real thing shows up, it was for the purpose of supporting God's redemptive activity. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 7, or I can just read these to you. In Exodus 7, uh, and really when you look at the Exodus, that is, really the, that is really the main redemptive act that you see, and there are others, but in the Old Testament, that God was pleased to move in signs and wonders in order to make it plain that God was saving his people and that he was the true and the living God. It is what separated him from all of the false gods. And this is what it says. Let me read you a few texts. Exodus 7.3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Exodus 11, 9. Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron, therefore, performed all wonders before Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 4, 34. It says, has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation? from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders. No God has ever done that. So the signs and wonders were meant to authenticate this is the real God that is doing all of these things, not all of the many pagan gods that existed in Egypt even, even. Another one. Deuteronomy 6.22, moreover, the Lord showed great distressing signs and wonders. Nehemiah is reflecting on this time when he said, you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all people in his land, for you knew that they acted ignorantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And again, Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen referring to the fact that God had performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. So Hebrews is saying that all such supernatural phenomenon was for the purpose of validating the message, validating God's redemptive acts. 
charismatic phenomenon was not given to the early church so that we could create charismatic churches versus cessationist churches. (laughs) That's not the reason they were given either. But to be a sign of judgment for unbelievers, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 21, as well as to be a means of validating the apostolic preaching of the cross, Acts chapter 2, verse 43. And sadly, sadly today, people live their lives in pursuit of that charismatic or miraculous activity. And they will go and they will go to the rallies and they will go to the they will go to the supposed healers and they will go to the miracle workers looking for some sort of supernatural activity. Supernatural activity. When God is under no constraint whatsoever to perform a miracle for anybody. Do I believe in miracles? Yes. Absolutely. We, uh, our God is a miraculous God. But what I don't believe in is trying to recreate the descriptions of Scripture. So Elijah's axe head floated. Are you going to try to make an axe head float? Of course not. And so they were giving tongues of fire. Are we to try to reproduce tongues of fire? Of course not. These things, to me, are very weighty because they, they, they signal the final redemptive period of time in God's history. It's not just commonplace. And so if anything that we learn from the, from the New Testament age is that these things are not normative. If they were normative, then the author of Hebrews would have spoken of them in the present tense as if they were normative in his life and in the life of the congregation, but he does not. He speaks of it in the past tense. He speaks of his situation and his audience as being removed from that period of time. So therefore, what ends up happening, people end up settling for a cheap counterfeit of the real thing prophecies that are somewhat true at times, tongues that cannot be even verified whether they are true and that have often been, dis, uh, un, uh, have often been proven to be false, uh, miracles which miracle workers that are always several degrees separated from the real thing. You always hear of a story. I just heard one recently this week of a brother that knows a brother that a brother did a miracle out in the middle of the jungle. It's always some sort of degrees of separation. Let me tell you something about the power of the miracles and the, and the spiritual phenomenon that was going on in Jesus' time. If you had an HD camera, you would have been able to film Jesus raising the dead. You would be able to film the healing of a man born blind. No one is doing that today. We have billions of cameras on planet Earth, folks. Where are the supposed miracle workers? It's always a story of, well, God doesn't like to show off his glory. Are you sure about that? He showed off his glory in Galilee. He scared multitudes of people. Fear came over people. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, when signs and wonders were being performed. I don't know that that is consistent. God was doing this unique work in the New Testament church because, my friends, of the unique era in which they lived. This is the high point. I almost think it's totally prideful and even blasphemous to think that we can recreate the ministry of Jesus with our hands. We cannot because it was such a distinct period of time. All the great confessions of the faith point to that. The Westminster, the London Baptists, and others refer to the uniqueness of the apostolic age And I think that's correct. And I I think even as early as the book of Hebrews, you already have the authors of Scripture looking back to a time when those things were in operation and not desiring to recreate those things in his own day. That is what he is saying in this verse. These were miracles, signs, wonders, gifts of the Spirit, spiritual phenomena according to his own will. God was perfectly sovereign over all these things. He used miracles in the Galatian church so that they would understand that the gospel that was being brought to them was authentic. 
He performed miracles in the Corinthian church, which was very early on in the ministry of the apostles, again, to authenticate the message and as a sign of judgment even for unbelievers that that period of redemptive history had dawned upon them. And therefore, it is a unique, non-normative phenomenon in Scripture. But let me tell you what I am encouraged about. Let me tell you what does comfort me very much is that many of the people that Hebrews was written to, the audience and the author, though they did not see Jesus, they did not see the apostles and their miraculous activity with their own eyes, yet the warning of this great salvation remains just as potent for us as for them. The warning that we have reached a climax in God's history through Jesus Christ. We can look at the fact that we have a common salvation with these folks. Their promises are our promises. Their covenant is our covenant. And most of all, their Messiah is our Messiah. If, and this is the spirit of Hebrews right here, if we do not neglect so great a salvation, if, chapter 3, verse 6, if we hold fast, our confidence, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let me tell you something, Christian soldier. In this life, you will have many tribulations. And you have been given the seed of the word of God. And Jesus has told, told us very plainly, what are those things that can choke out the seed and disqualify us as being true converts? Be careful. Put a guard over your heart. Do not let the worries of the, word, of the world come in and choke out the word of God. Do not allow persecution to come in and cause you to stumble because of the word. Right? I mean, everything is great when everybody around, around you likes you. But when you start having friends, family, and co-workers giving you looks, cur cursing you out, because of your new Jesus thing, then the rubber meets the road. Are you going to hold fast to your confession firm until the end? Because we have need of perseverance. This life is a long life. I understand it's a vapor, but bear with me. We have many years ahead of us. It's, it's going to be a long road for many of us. And I'm concerned for us that we that we stay solid, founded on the rock, so that when the storms come in, we do not blow away. And that's why it's so important for us to do the things that Scripture tells us to do, the means of grace that will cultivate our strength, cultivate and fortify our spiritual lives, the means of grace, fellowship, church, the sacraments, the baptism, the Lord's Supper, the regular Scripture reading, prayer, Fellowshipping with God's people, sitting under the preaching of the word of God. These are the way that things, this is not just hum-ho. This is not just rote. Oh, do not despise the normative operations of the spirit. Don't despise the normative things that God has ordained for you to grow as a mature Christian. We're not just looking for the mountain-high experience, Right? It always terrifies me when somebody comes up to me and says, that was the best sermon I think you've ever preached. I'm like, that means I'll disappoint you next time. It's not for us to grow with one mountain peak experience after another. This is the problem with charismatic churches is they think you didn't really meet with God unless you really spoke in tongues or you prophesied or you had some sort of ecstatic experience. Then you really, then you really experienced the, the work of the, of the Lord. No, 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 no. My friends, no. If you live like that, then you will burn out and you will be dissatisfied when all of those things are gone and when you become cessationist. <laughs> Hopefully you will. <laughs> Um, I know these are difficult things. I know that not everybody believes what I'm preaching right now in terms of the cessation of spiritual gifts, at least not being normative in the church today, but I believe it is what the Word of God teaches, and I believe that it's the only thing that will hold a church together. 
the only thing that will hold a church together. I have seen so much abuse and dysfunction in the charismatic world, so much whacked out phenomenon, even among supposed clear thinking reform theologians. Listen, I do not appreciate when John Piper gets up and teaches his conference how to speak in tongues. Because he, and he brings in a guest speaker and says, he's, gonna, he's here to teach us how to do it. How do you get it going in your church? What? Even among the charismatic theology, where is that in the Bible? How you get it going? I mean, even the verse we looked at today, the, the Spirit was sovereign over those things. We don't get it going. If you say we're going to get it going, that just means we're about to have a false revival. Friends, I think it's imperative for a church to be built on the right foundation, a foundation that subscribes 100% to the sufficiency of Scripture. And let me tell you right now, you don't need anybody to come up to you and give you a dream. You don't need anybody to come up to you and give you a prophecy, give you a word that they got so that you can make decisions based on those things in your life. In my opinion, you need one word, the word. And the word is enough, sufficient for everything that you will ever need in this life. That's not to say God is not a miraculous God, cannot heal, cannot perform a miracle. Of course he can. Of course he can lead you in a supernatural way. I believe it. But this is the sure word of prophecy that we can build our life and our church on. Amen. Now that I stirred up the whole hornet's nest, let's pray. (laughs) In unity. Father, Lord, I do believe in the sufficiency of your word, and we are called to take heed not to any type of personal experience, but to take heed to the word that was spoken, the message of salvation that was spoken first through the Lord Jesus himself and then through your apostles to the early church that we now have perfectly inscripturated and sealed for us in a book. And so we're grateful for that. We do pray your spirit would be pleased to move among us in all of his power, in all of his sovereignty, that he would have his way among us here and in our personal lives, that we would be those who are led by your spirit, filled with your spirit, that we would live our lives based on the resources of the spirit himself, that we would walk in the spirit, that we would be um, given discernment by your spirit, Father, we pray that you would continue to exalt your son Jesus in our midst, Father. That's our heart's desire. Lift up Jesus in our midst, Lord. Help us to see him as supreme and sovereign, as altogether lovely. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.